alas. Then Shafa smiles again, and she remembers everything she's tried to forget. She feels alone again and helpless as she was that day near Palela, lost in the hateful world with no one to rely on except a man whose love comes wrapped in pain. But his child will be more than a worthwhile replacement, Shafa says. you did you get a haircut i just parted it to the side and it looks different but Ah, i tried to get a haircut on (laughs) friday i drove to nags head and they couldn't get me in so walk-ins not walk-ins well i'm sure i would have been welcome if they hadn't been busy but they were busy so um they're like yeah the earliest you take that cowbell and you can just shove it right up your ass your ass (laughs) <laughs> Walk-ins not oh, welcome. <laughs> Two I had little to... <laughs> mice were trying to get a haircut. One walked in and was immediately sheared bald. I, I don't know where we're going. You might say in half. <laughs> they turned his little mouse head into plum pudding. It was gross. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, the the wild ascending imprecation. Yeah, and um, ascending statements inflected as a question for no reason, <laughs> and then sudden ascension. Sometimes oh. I can really find the walk-in. Your your walk-in has always been better than my walk-in. I'm I'm always Sometimes. impressed. Like I always do my walk-in. And and like and then you start and I'm like oh god. Imagine Chris Walken being the character played by Ray Winstone in the Ripley's game, you know where uh, with nice. uh, Malkovich, where you know it's this kind of British almost Cockney <coughs> gangster who's like trying to get him to kill these Italian. But I'm imagining it's like I'm having some trouble with some former business associates in Italy. I was wondering, I need a man of your kind to turn their heads into gravy. It's not quite there, you know. And then That's Malkovich is like, are you going yeah. to get to the point or will some truffling <laughs> pig find you in the manor in a few months? I don't do a very good Malkovich. It's very hard to go. Walk into Malkovich is very, yeah, those. it's very, it's like going from Jupiter, yeah. Jupiter to Saturn instantly. Yeah. It's. Yeah, or trying to trying to hit Irish then, then Scottish, Scottish. Yeah, they're sort of too too oh, closely related God. to quickly move back and forth. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. shall we dive into book? Um, Let's do it. For, so, second half of the book, um, we first have a cyanite chapter where because uh, alabaster is sick, cyanite. Um, first of all, I don't remember if this happens in the first half or the second half, but both cyanite and alabaster do some work kind of chastising this local bureaucrat into treating them more nicely. And eventually they succeed at that. And those cyanites are like, okay, let's all be friends now. I'll try to figure out what's wrong with your Harbor. Turns out it's not coral. Turns out that um, cyanite 
was going to be doing this with Alabaster, but Alabaster's been poisoned, so he's recovering in the inn, convalescing. She discovers there is something big in the harbor. She says, maybe we should just leave it here. Um, and they're like, no, we really need this unclogged. So she's like, all right, I'll try, but this could be bad. And sure enough, a big-ass obelisk with a stone eater, like embedded in it um, emerges from the harbor and then begins floating over the harbor, which we've already learned that there are these floating obelisks that most of the people just ignore. Um, so that's that's that chapter. Um, the, the, <laughs> the next chapter, uh, it, we're with uh, Esun again, and this is really just sort of life on the road, the party of Tonki and Hoa, who I mistakenly referred to as Moa every single time last time. Yes, yes, every, like the entire yeah. episode last yeah, time. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> I'm going to do like... about that in the edit, if I can substitute or if I can just tell people, listen, part of that is that my um, my uncle and aunt in the 90s had a dog named Moa. Um, so that might ah. be where that comes from. But Yeah, I, I, knew there, I knew it was coming from somewhere and I was like, I was like, has Jesse been reading like Richard Kipling? It's one of the Jungle Book characters named Moa. Or I wonder, something maybe like one of the characters is named Moa. That that, like, I there was a real like there was a ding for me yeah, also. Yeah. Like, I think there is another character out there in the world other than you know this dog that you're talking yeah. about. Um, I will just say like Rudyard Kipling is a you know um, unreformed colonialist, but his character names are awesome. Sheer Khan. Mm. Um, yeah, um, I can't remember Ka the snake. Um, yeah, um, so this is kind of an Esun and Hoa and Tonki on the road chapter, and we're starting to sense that Tonki is more than she appears to be. Um, but they're just kind of moving along. I don't remember if there's anything else that really important that happens. We also, I think. Is th- no, we've already learned that um, Hoa can turn um, living things into uh, glass. So I, th- I think it's just, you know, I don't remember there being all that much plot. It's sort of more like characterization. Then we have another cyanite in Alabaster chapter. They're trying to make sense of why uh, the fulcrum has told them to remain in place and they're sort of strategizing. And then a guardian shows up and tries to kill them. Um, and uh, that that ends with a sort of cliffhanger. Um, Cyanite tries to intervene by somehow drawing on the power of uh, the obelisk that's in the harbor. That doesn't work. And you get one of those like classic film noir sort of chapter endings, which is sort of like, and then everything went dark, um, kind of a cliffhanger. And then we get another Esun chapter um, and Esun and Hoa and Tonki on the road discover this community called uh, Kastrima. Is that what it's called? Um, and yeah. where the word Raga, which up to this point has been a word that's most people consider to be a slander, a slur, a very impolite word. Um, people are now openly declaring themselves to be ragas in this particular community, this calm. Um, there's also a open stone eater there, and the stone eater and Hoa have this kind of like intimidation off before they decide to stop yeah, they, grinning at each other. They they bear their yeah, they kind of bear their yeah, teeth at each other. They bear their faceted teeth at one another <laughs> and then decide to back off. We meet the new character, uh, Ika, who's kind of the head of this com and 
I believe she introduces herself, her use name. She uses it as Raga, which is kind of shocking uh, to Esun and also shocking to Tonki, but they're sort of getting used to it. And at this point, we're still above ground, but we have this sense that a number of the origins are uh, converging on this place, and this place is welcoming them and sort of preparing for a very, very long fifth season that has been, you know, unleashed by uh, the major seismic event, which we learn about later at the end of the book, but we don't know about at this phase in the book. Uh, so, yeah, do you want to do 16 through interlude, maybe? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this section of the book is called Similar Settings Get Discovered in Different Time Signatures. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so after cyanite and alabaster uh, were attacked by the guardian we have that cliffhanger ending of chapter 14 they wake up somewhere else uh, alive um they realize that they have been whisked away from a to a to, to, a, to a swiss attacked. chalet in the alps where they wear towels for three months <laughs> just kidding this is like an intensely dangerous swiss chalet because they're on a motherfucking island right. uh, which we learn very quickly cyanite is like oh my god islands are death traps they're you know gigantic waves out here um, but yeah, they've been like kind of pulled through the earth by this stone eater that Alabaster knows. Um, it is an island called Mayov. And uh, kind of confusingly, because we just met another Kam uh, that is also run by Ragas, this is another place that is run by Ragas, but we are in the previous time area. Uh, the Ragas on this particular island are sort of untrained. Um, it's, uh, they call, it's them, they call like, them like wildlings or something like that, or there's some yeah, word that they... it's a little bit of that trope yeah. that like, uh, hedge you know, wizard. Like more sophisticated. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. It, they're, they're hedge witches. Yep. Um, and, uh, they make their living through piracy. Uh, which is just great. It's like, sweet. All right. Now we have also a pirate's tale going on in this book. Uh, that is chapter 16. We are, and that is then. Uh, I like these time signatures that we have, which are sort of now with Essen and then with Cyanite and Demaya. Uh, we flash back to Demaya, um, back at the fulcrum while she's still learning. She meets um, not another student, um, somebody who is masquerading as a student named Binoff. Um, they kind of sneak into an area of the fulcrum they're not supposed to, and they discover this like gigantic negative space that is kind of lined with like razor sharp hairs. Um, they are caught in the act and they are almost sort of like killed, it seems, by a guardian. Uh, but then Demaya's guardian, Shafa, shows up, kills the other guardian by removing that other guardian's brainstem. Um, and uh, yeah, Binoff and Demaya are safe. Binhoff is kind of given a stern talking to because she's part of the leadership clan. Um, and uh, the thing they discover is called the socket, uh, which we, we learn later on why that's impor important. Okay, we flash back to now. Wait, 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 wait. No, but there's one very important oh, yeah. reveal at the end of the chapter too, uh, which oh, is that... yes. Basically, Demaya's in big trouble, and Shafa's like, okay, the only way you're going to get out of this trouble is if you take your test, your sort of graduation exam right now. And she's like, all right, all right, I'll do it. 
And I've picked my Raga name, she actually says, or her origin name, it's Cyanite. And that's when we're it's confirmed that Demaya and Cyanite are in fact the same person at different phases in their life. Which I have to give you kudos to that because you a long way ago were like, I think that some of these characters are the same character. Um, and uh, so impressive reading on that part. Um, we are now back to now. Um, and uh, Essen um, has gone down into the earth in this uh, this city called Kestrima, this calm called Kestrima, uh, which is actually inside a gigantic underground geode, mm. uh, which should make us think of the early chapters where we saw a stone eater come out of a geode. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and the dark and crystal, chapter... maybe, or Fraggle Rock, little Fraggle Rock. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, like, there's... Uh, this this section of the book, I, like, you know, we said at the end of last episode that we thought that we were going to get into, like, all of the pieces were going to be set up, sort of a la Neil Stevenson, and this second half of the book would be about them all knocking nope, each other nope, over. Nope, new stuff. Nope. <laughs> more stuff. More pieces. <laughs> more chess pieces. More more chess pieces. Well-rendered chess pieces. Um, sure. The book the book loses a little focus in this kind of like quarter of the yeah, book. Yeah, I, would I felt say. that way too. It, it, yeah, it really kind of heads in the direction again to draw on like the over enthusiastic dungeon master idea. Um, there's a few too many things, and they're and and they're too much the same. Like we we get these two different communities that are kind of run by ragas there are stone eaters in both of them and several of our characters are, are merging in identity um and so there's this strange motion of characters merging while similar settings are ramifying and kind of multiplying and so it, it makes for the section of the book that while you know entertaining is a little out of focus, I thought. Yeah. Well, why don't we keep going through? Why don't you do nineteen yeah. and and maybe we take that up right after our recap too. But um, I had a similar kind of sense of uh, more more kind of pushing through the morass a little bit in these yeah. in these chapters too. Totally. Uh, in chapter nineteen, um, it's one of like our few kind of like very much upbeat chapters in the book. Um, where Cyanite, uh, the head of the calm Maov, uh, the sort of head pirate, uh, and Alabaster become lovers. And, and like there's at first there's this kind of negotiation between whether Cyanite or Alabaster are going to get in on. Um, and then in on it, in on is like, <laughs> you don't have to fight. I want, <laughs> yeah, there's no need. I forget. There's a. Oh, what's that? There's a Mary Chapin Carpenter song where at the end of the line, she's 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 got Dwight Yoakam on like her left and Lyle Lovett on her right. And they're both hitting on her. And she says, boys, you don't have to fight. <laughs> oh, good old Mary Chapin. Great Carpenter. moment. Great moment. Hot damn. Yeah. I feel lucky tonight. That's that. That's how that line ends. I'll send you the link. Oh, later. my God. Uh we might edit this out later. Brief shout out to 60 songs that explain the nineties. Um, the episode on Billy Ray Cyrus, mm. they have a producer on who basically, uh, 
produced a TV episode where like Billy Ray Cyrus and Mary Chapin Carpenter and several other like sort of like hot women of the early 90s uh, were all like gathered in one place together. And this producer was telling this amazing story about like Billy Ray showing up and basically her job for the rest of the day was to like try to tamp down the like female lust in the mm. room <laughs> because like Billy Ray was also kind of going through a rough patch at that particular mm. moment. And he was divorced, but had a kid that of course this all culminated for me stopping the podcast I was listening to and shouting across the lawn. Miley Cyrus is Billy Ray Cyrus's daughter. Oh, <laughs> and like the, the person on the other end of the lawn turns and is like, are you kidding? Oh, and uh, and Dolly Parton's uh, goddaughter too. Uh, yes, I yes I did. Uh, I I also learned um, that from that particular uh, episode. I did know that, and and Billy Ray Cyrus is one of those figures who appears to be sort of two dimensional in thin, and actually turns out to be kind of three dimensional and awesome. You, you know, like he's yeah. he is a he's a more thoughtful, more complex well-traveled, uh, um, politically astute, um, talented person than achy breaky heart would have you, you know, imagine, I think, even though there's nothing yeah. wrong with achy breaky heart. That is a, that is probably one of the top 10 nineties country tunes. In my opinion, um, he kind of appeared as a one hit wonder in the nineties, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, just like he uplifted um, Old Town Road, too, you know, and that, you know, mm -hmm. and yes. I don't know if that if that podcast got into it. But, you know, um, uh, Lil Nas X was not getting respect from the country music community. And Billy Ray Cyrus is like this. This I'm going to help, you know, and uh, and yes, uh, Miley Cyrus, a.k.a. Hannah Man Montana, plus his appearance in uh, Mulholland Drive, I think, is excellent as well. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Billy Ray Cyrus is. Uh, yeah. Good dude, handsome, talented. You know, Billy Ray. If you got to, you want to talk summer reading and you hear this, uh, hit us up. Hit Hello us up. at uh, Upper Middle Brow. We'll talk about your favorite books. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then we get to our second interlude section of this book. Uh, and the the interludes I'm starting to think are are clearly important. Yeah. Um, but uh, this one covers a time skip. Uh, that I will let you take us into the final third of this particular half. I don't book. remember this interlude particularly well. My only impression of it was sort of like, and then past three happy years, you know, on the island, yeah. living in the pirate fantasy with Inan, who is basically like, if they cast The Rock to play Jack Sparrow instead of Johnny Depp, you would get Inan. Uh, and... Marvelous. Yeah. I love it. Um, you know, I can't unsee that. Well, I mean, he's huge. He has dreads. He's incredibly handsome. He's charismatic. He's playful. Um, um, so, yeah, um, this is science point of view. And this is kind of like a little bit of like science happy life in this love triangle. Uh, there's some piracy. There is, I think, some interesting moral implication that happens here because Cyan really wants to help with the piracy. And so I think to N.K. Jemison's credit, even though our, our Cyan and Alabaster are happiest in this chapter, that happiness does come with a cost because they are raiding these other comms. And at one point, 
um, Cyan is compelled by um, Inan um, to um, use her uh, orogeny powers to just kill uh, like 300 people on some ships because they, you know, basically they have to keep uh, Cyan and Alabaster's existence uh, secret. And that's, you know, that's morally complex. You know, you get the sense that the, the pirates... They try not to hurt anybody if they can help it. You know, they mostly what they do is extract mm -hmm. tribute and they intimidate. Um, but, you know, it, pirates are romanticized a lot. If you look at history, pirates do some pretty bad stuff. Um, and yeah. uh, and we do we do see this that. Is a, this is a like, I mean, they're, they're sort of they're they're kind of Robin Hood and his merry men with like a little extra edge to them. And not necessarily giving like... to the poor. <laughs> Maybe maybe robbing no, from the no, rich, giving but to themselves and giving to themselves, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other—it's th the moral complexity we wanted right. in in uh, Cryptonomicon when there's like boats getting like snapped in half yeah. and like plenty of sailors going like to their doom, uh, which in Stevenson is kind of tossed yeah. away. Here, like there is a real cost to Cyanite going on this particular mission. Yeah. Um, well, there, there's a moral and... cost and there's also a there are consequences later, too, because it does totally. sort of telegraph their presence in the world. Um, somewhere around this time, too, Cyanide pays a visit to the coastal community where that she tried to help out and turns out it was destroyed in a volcano. And she feels bad about that. Um, not necessarily guilty because she was sort of but bad. She feels sorry for them. Um, and the other thing that happens in this chapter is that there is a baby um these this sort of threesome have a baby that is biologically cyanite and alabaster's uh child um and they adore and whose name is corundum and who is adored by all three of them um and so yeah then we move on to another essun chapter which begins very abruptly with essun saying wait a minute i know who you are you're been off uh to tonki and sure enough this reminds me by the way of um foundation do you remember the mule did you read foundation as a teenager like the foundation trilogy oh no. that better not spoil it for you anyway the, okay. so so tonki who is this sort of like at first calmless very you know kind of like look like run down you know often uh us um as soon comments on how um poorly she smells um, oh, who, by the way, is also biologically male and trans um, or whatever the stillness's word for being trans is, um, but lives as a woman, um, has a penis. And actually, that was troublesome for her in her earlier life because her parents and her community were not very accepting of that. So Essun slash Cyanite. Uh, oh, sorry. Well, Essun identifies Tonki as Binoff and you're like well how would Essun know about Binoff and then we also realize Essun is also in fact Cyanite and is also Demaya and in fact all three protagonists are the same person all along um and I you know that one actually was a little bit of a surprise um to me uh, I did I did guess the other one um, and then the other thing that, so there, we get a little bit of Tonki's backstory. Tonki is a kind of like scholar, was being raised to be a leader, but because of being trans and also because of her personality, 
doesn't gets kind of kicked out of leader school and instead is sort of trying to figure out some geology stuff um, that we're not quite sure about, but I think it's revealed uh, a little bit later in the book. Um, and then the other thing that happens is this kind of minor character, Lerna returns, who is a young doctor um, who is maybe 10 or 15 years younger than Esun, um, who is from Esun's village and sort of gives a little bit of an update um, in terms of like what's happened at that village too. Um, and then uh, and then we have a big chapter that is essentially the fulcrum has figured out that cyanite and alabaster are on this island and they send ships and they send guardians and there's a big epic fantasy fight you know with orogeny and guardians neutralizing the orogeny and you know seafaring and cannons and and it comes down to a climax at the end where Shafa shows up. And um, I, I, first of all, I believe Inan uh, is killed. Alabaster is whisked away by the Stone Eater. Cyanite and Shafa have a confrontation. And rather than let Shafa kidnap Conundrum, the child, back and be enslaved, uh, smothers him to death. Um, which is terrible and awful. And also we completely understand why Cyanite makes that choice at that point, particularly having seen the node maintainers in the earlier sections, these really, really yeah. uh, brutally enslaved uh, orogenies. Um, and so that's our big climax. And then there's one more chapter in which I've written, most is revealed. Do you want to do that chapter for us? <laughs> yeah, we're back in, uh, we're back in Castrima. Um, and uh, I'd say the, the big the big reveal of this one is that Alabaster is not dead um, and that that and again, you are correct. Um, your your intuition on this book was pretty darn spot on that character at the very beginning of the book that we saw when we're getting introduced to uh, Humanus and this world. Um, and there is a stone eater and a man up above the city of Humanus and basically does this like massive seismic event that brings on this particular fifth season. Um, and uh, we learn that because Alabaster shows up um, in not great shape. Um, and Essen, Cyanite, Demaya um, sort of speculates on how much longer he might actually be alive. Yeah. Um, some shades of like Anakin after the fight with Obi-Wan yeah, in yeah. Revenge of the Sith, where he's kind of getting carried around and like some of the limbs are there and some of the limbs aren't. Um, that was the image that I got mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, we are left with a kind of classic end of first trilogy book um, where like a lot of the threads are wrapped up, but not all of them. Um, you know, we know that that cyanite kind of distanced herself, got away and was going to live in, was living in Torimo for the past 10 years uh, before this action. Uh, and then the book ends with a question that Alabaster poses to Essen uh, that I am guessing is going to power the second uh, installation of this trilogy. The question being, have you heard of something called a moon? 
Spoilers. Well, I mean, we just did the recap, right? I mean, our, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Before we get into the questions we've got, I'm going to ask you one quick question, which is, yeah, like, yeah. which half of the book do you think was stronger, the first half or the second half? I think the first half is stronger. Yeah. I think there's, um, I think the first half is stronger because we get more, we don't learn a lot, but we go through a lot of, we ride shotgun on a whole bunch of moral questions. Mm-hmm. Um, Cyanite trying to make peace with her role at the fulcrum as basically a breeder for Alabaster. Um, and that development of character, Essence, um, struggle with her own power um, and knowing that she can kill um, and that she dearly wants to track down her son. Um, A detail of which that is kind of dispensed with in the second half of the book. Like, oh yeah, Uche and, you know, Jija and your daughter, um, they're not here. Yeah, yeah. They might show up. We might, you know, they might. And this is a trilogy. This is book one, so. True, it, it felt a little like... It felt a little bit shell gamey. Different. I mean. So the second half of the book to me reminded me a little bit about what you and I both felt about the Diamond Age, uh, which uh-huh. was what a talented writer, what an ambitious scope and world, and maybe there's a little too much going on for one book. In the second half, I had a couple of moments where I'm just like, I think I'm just seeing N.K. Jemison trying to wrap this up or, or, or trying yeah. to explain this. One of those moments for me is the moment I'm calling Deus Ex Rachina, when um, the stone eater just whisks. You know, there's this confrontation between Cyanide, Alabaster and the Guardian. You know, Alabaster is neutralized and stabbed. Cyanide tries to use some you know, orogeny, it's not working, fade out, fade to, where are we? We're in an island. How did we get here? And Alabaster is sort of like, uh, yeah, I happen to know the Stone Eater shows up sometimes. So yeah, that's that's why we're here. It's an island. Um, let's go talk to these people. And then like five pages later, he sort of explained, yeah, yeah, they've lived here. They've lived here. And it, it just, there's a lot of exposition and in fact, if you don't mind, I even have a reading marked here where maybe, maybe yeah, I wasn't yeah, planning do on doing this, but I think I can get right into it as much. As, and I, I want to be clear. N.K. Jemison, like, obviously the real deal, you know, great writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but every now and again, even a great writer will have sort of moments that maybe read as a little bit lazy or read as a little bit. I just needed to solve a problem and I did it and I wrote through it. So this is Alabaster and Cyanite talking after they've been whisked and alabaster is sort of like yeah i've got this stone eater who i see from time to time who helps me out and alabaster shakes his head focusing on his footing again there's no why to anything they do or if there is they never bother telling us i've stopped asking frankly waste of breath antimony that's the name of the stone eater antimony has been coming to me for the past five years usually when no one else is around He makes a soft, rueful sound. I used to think I was hallucinating her. Yes, well, and she doesn't tell you anything? She just says she's here for me. I can't decide whether it's a supportive statement. You know, I'm here for you, Baster. 
I'll always love you. Never mind that I'm a living statue that only looks like a pretty woman. I've got your back. Or something more sinister. Doesn't matter, though, if she saved our lives. Cyan supposes not. And where is she now? Gone. Cyan resists the urge to kick him down the steps. Into, uh... She knows what she's read, but it does seem sort of absurd to say it aloud. Into the earth? I suppose so. They move through rock like it's air. I've seen them do it. He pauses. <laughs> Just thinking about Pulp Fiction. <laughs> they put mayonnaise on those french fries. I've seen them do it. Um, I've seen them do it. He pauses on one of the stairs' frequent landings, which almost makes cyanite run into the back of him. You do know it's probably how she got us here, right? It's something Cyan's been trying not to think about. Even the idea of being touched by the stone eater is unnerving. To think further of being carried by the creature, dragged down beneath miles of solid rock and ocean, she cannot help shuddering. A stone eater is a thing that defies reason, like orogeny, or dead sieve artifacts, or anything else that cannot be measured and predicted in a way that makes sense. But where orogeny can be understood, somewhat, and controlled, with effort, and where dead sieve artifacts can at least be avoided until they rise from the rusting ocean right in front of you, stone eaters do as they please, go where they will. Loris' tales are generous with warnings regarding these creatures. No one tries to stop them. Maybe it's... Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of tell, not show. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it a lot? Of, and it, and yeah. the dialogue is sort of like... It's like Nora Jemison is like, Alabaster, sign it. Help me out with some exposition here. I need... <laughs> Explain what's going on to each other, and 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 it just it and it feel it's it feels a little cute. It almost kind of felt to me like middle schoolers wrote it, and I don't know. Maybe she gets away with it. Maybe it's part of her kind of playful writing tone, particularly the whole alabaster sort of being like, yeah, she says she's there for me, and I don't know. Does that mean like I'll always love you, even though I'm a living statue? Or it's kind of funny, but it it doesn't it it feels more like NK Jemison to me than Alabaster in that moment. But with but without the without the strange framing of some of the early chapters where we're not in a character's subjectivity enough yeah. that that question of who it is is interesting. Yeah. In this moment it's simply jarring. Because we are in Cyanite's narration in this moment. Yeah. And, and then it's like, whoop, <laughs> or we're not. Like, because there's that moment in the very early pages of the book where we get this section where the, the, the narrator says something like, ha ha. And it's just this like, oh, that's, it, feel, it feels very authorial right. and playful. Right. And I think you're right. Similar kind of tone of voice here. But it's like been slathered on to another character, sort of Nickelodeon slime. Right. right. Well, onto yeah, and I even think character. that's a great metaphor. <laughs> um, and I even think that, you know, one of the things we learn at the very end in the very last chapter is that the narrator of the wonderful, masterful um, prelude chapter, opening chapter, whatever it's called, is actually Hoa. Uh, that that mm -hmm. Hoa basically says, yeah, you know, I'm the one who is saying it, it has been watching Cyanite for some time. And we were getting this very slow burn sense that the stone eaters have some kind of plan 
that they're enacting. Yeah. And maybe it has something to do with Alabaster's moon question. And maybe it has something to do with what Tonky is researching. And that, you know, you kind of get the sense that, I mean, I, I think I know what the plan is, which is like make a moon and that'll sort of quiet the uh, seismological activity of this world. And then, you know, that will allow the stills the muggles and the um you know the the orogenies to kind of it'll take away the sort of structural conflict that's almost baked into the mm -hmm. world because the stills kind of need the orogenies to survive and they kind of need to keep to some degree keep control over them um although they do it in a very brutal way um that is unethical and evil um but but so it, it seems to me like that's where we're kind of headed with all this and that the, the the stone eaters have some kind of destiny but yeah i i kind of went way off track there because you were talking about the voice of the narration and i think like yeah i think i think that that voice of that narrator was supposed to be hoa the stone eater and then just sort of mm -hmm. like yeah the voices get a little bit weird there and and it was just one of those rare moments i don't think i had a single moment in the first half of the book where i saw the writer sort of trying to make something work and also hand wave yep. something away and lampshade something away and there was kind of a lot of it right there and it, there is a lot because whenever you do like oh i'm going to introduce a supernatural character that's going to save my two main characters from a cliffhanger you know that's a lot. That's Deus Ex Rockina, you know, that you're not supposed to yeah. do that. Um, and, and yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was great. And, um, you know, it kind of broke the spell for me a little bit in the second half. And there were a couple other moments like that in the second half, too, even though. Yeah, yeah there are shades of the, this. This kind of thing happens in particular when, like, um, TV shows are trying to wrap yeah. up, um, especially long running TV shows. Um, you know, I. I think there's probably, you know, the strike rate for like ends of TV shows that are kind of regarded as, as like, well done is, is going to be, I don't know, 20%, 25%, yeah, one hard, out of four. Hard. Hard. Yeah. I mean, for every, for every breaking bad, there's probably three or four game of thrones. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, spoilers for, uh, the rebooted Battlestar Galactica TV show, but in, in a very similar way, we learn about two thirds of the way through the run of uh, of Battlestar Galactica that Starbuck is killed, and uh, I believe I'm not quite sure if she was killed during a writer's strike, mm. um, but like Battlestar was going on kind of as that 2008 writer's strike was really coming to a head. Um, so I don't know if she got killed off because of the writer's strike. Writer's strike ends. Everybody's like, what? No, he's <laughs> like the most beloved character of the franchise. We got to bring her back. They bring her back. There's some question about, is she dead? Is she not yeah. dead? The show wraps up with essentially this equally ham-handed scene where she and Adama are talking to each other now that they are safe on the planet Earth. And Adama kind of looks away for a second and is like, well, what do you think you're going to do? And looks back and Starbuck is gone. <laughs> and you're like, okay, she was like an angel or something. And, like, kind of violating a whole bunch of the storytelling that yeah. had been done up until that point. And, and, yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, there's, like, a reaching for shorthand in this particular moment that 
is kind of okay and i feel like is is a lot of the second half of the book yeah um there's more setting up of things happening uh, than perhaps we could use. And and quick reveals of things. Okay, so I did, I noticed the similarities between Demaya and Cyanite last time. Um, mm-hmm. I went, I was surprised by the reveal about Esun. Um, and I think some of that was the physical descriptions didn't necessarily seem like they were matching, although Later, we do learn Cyanite refers to herself as a mid-level mutt, which is, or a mid-ladder mutt, which is exactly how Esun refers to herself early on, too. But that's after we know they're the same person. And I realize I don't think we ever got Cyanite or Demaya's skin tone. We got hair, which was different, but that's because there is a regulation hair bun that the fulcrum mm-hmm. uses. So that's why their hair was different. And we did the one thing we did know they had in common, I think was tall. They're both, they were both described as tall, but um, I'm curious, did you, did, were you also surprised by learning Esun's identity that this, that this, these three characters were only one character? I think I saw it coming once the once once the the jaws began to close, mm. um, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> I think I know what's going to happen." Uh, as soon as Cyanite saw the Guardian in the ruins of Aaliyah, mm. which is kind of the thing that is we're, we're guessing is the th- reason that the Fulcrum kind of figures out where they are. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I think that is what we're about to get. That that um, and the uh, obelisks were converging on her, too. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, which we later learned from Tonki slash Binoff, was also happening to Esun, which is how uh, yeah. uh, Tonki was able um, to track her down there, too. Um, I did feel like Tonki's... You, I went back and read Tonki's original description, and that was quite the disguise. That was quite the transformation, you know, um, from sort of like smart Alec, upper class, ruling class, you know, girl to sort of homeless, calmless, weathered. Um, part of it maybe also was that in the, the audiobook which i read they gave her an appalachian accent and binoff had a different <laughs> accent too um, uh, yes yeah um, that's true i remember that and so that also maybe kind of throws you off a little bit um but yeah yeah um anyway that was i i i did not 100% see that one coming although and i also this was another one of those sort of clumsy moments because there's no essoon figuring it out there's literally the chapter is just like wait a minute you're been off i know who you are at the very beginning of the chapter um and there are a couple other moments like that in the second half too where just something happens kind of lickety split like that um without necessarily in my mind enough work uh, to set it out yeah i think um i think one of the reasons why it's not easy to see it coming is the difference in point of view Mm. Uh, and we talked about this last yeah, time, the but you. I mean, second person is such a powerfully different mode of narration that it it is, we, we tend to layer point of view to mean a, a certain subjectivity. 
Yeah. And yeah. that is, that's a tall thing to kind of see past or see beyond. Yeah. Um, because that's the nature of the way that we experience books is like, when we hear a different point of view, our brains as humans just like categorize that like, okay, character, character, character. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why that domino falls last. And and there's two little clues. Um, we are told in that very first chapter, Essun, remember you're Essun, you used to have other names or you used to be somebody yeah. else. And I hadn't taken that, I had taken that in a more spiritual sense, almost a sort of reincarnation sense, as opposed to a, you made up a new name and have a new identity. And, you know, I, I hadn't picked up, but there was that clue. And then there's a moment of lampshading later where Essun finds her personality slipping and becoming more cyanide-like and where she's basically, so, so their personalities seem different as well. And we're sort of later that's explained or lampshaded as, you know, at, when cyanide took this identity of Essun, she also crafted part of the identity crafting was crafting a different personality too. I think that N.K. Jemisin intended these as a surprise, but a surprise that would also be like, oh, that makes total sense. Like that, that's mm -hmm. how I think. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, maybe some people would have kind of guessed um, that the characters might be the same too, but I'd surprise. And I will definitely say one of the powerful elements of positive craft is having the first half appear to be three protagonists and then merging them together. I mean, I'm downgrading it a little bit for clunkiness. I'm suggesting it's a little bit clunky, but on the whole, it's a pretty brilliant narrative trick to have three narrators oh, yeah. in three different time periods who turn out to be the same person and the stories converge in the final act, basically, in a, in a really powerful way. That was so. That's one of my questions for you, mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to that because it it's it's about so. What do you feel the alternating structure gives to this novel? Well, it's a good question. Um, I'm gonna. I hadn't prepared myself for that question, but I do think, you know, you were talking about how there is a similarity to what is revealed in the second half of the book about. You have two different communities in which ragas are in positions of leadership, authority, and openly. And I think the effect of that for the reader is the sense that there is the possibility of another order. So having, having that revealed that way is satisfying. I also think... It's actually pretty brilliant that you have Cyanite's story climax and then the coda of that story happens to Essun, um, what, like 10 years later, but we're all learning at the same time. So that coda emotionally feels as though it's happening right after the climax, even though it's happened temporally somewhat before that. Um, so I think that does it too. And then I think maybe the third benefit of it as well is that Essun and Alabaster and to some degree Cyanite at various times behave monstrously. Um, I mean, Alabaster kills 7 million people in Yumenez. Yeah. 
And yeah. and he and actually this is one of the the real troubling parts of the book to me because I'm really not sure the book morally grapples with that um, in a really honest way. I do think that the narrative structure does bring us to the point of explaining why these characters who have been oppressed and dehumanized by the wider world would behave in a monstrous way. Um, and I, you know, specifically as soon at the very beginning when her son is murdered, takes her revenge on the village, but she takes her revenge on people who are completely innocent of that, including the headman whose name I forget, who's actually sympathetic to her and is, is on her side basically in trying to help. And, you know, and she also kills the hundreds of sailors, you know, in order to kind of hide her secret and Alabaster's secret. And then Alabaster's, I mean, how many humans in our world have caused the death of millions of people? Um, Hitler, Stalin, maybe Genghis Khan. I mean, these are people who are not re well remembered by history. And I think similar to Alabaster, mm -hmm. They feel like they have a good reason. They feel like they're doing it mm -hmm. for a purpose. Often they have a real sense of grievance. Um, and that's monstrous. And um, the the narrative structure, I do want to talk about this moral question, but I do think the narrative structure does build in the, the narrative explanation for that monstrous behavior in a very effective way as well. Yeah, I mean, we get... I mean, right off the bat, so, I mean, we, we can look back through the book and this character's history once we, once all the sort of shoes drop and realize that she's lost, that she's lost two children yeah. to the predations of this particular social structure. Yeah. Um, and so it is not surprising that, you know, she is very hurt yeah. and angry and and as alabaster would be as well alabaster's um, children have sort of... been enslaved in a kind of torturous um you know semi alive state as node maintainers mm -hmm. um and he also you know uh conundrum no is that corundum uh, uh corundum corundum uh <laughs> is his son there's like too. a there's like a, a consistency of mispronounced characters in I his, I, in I, his did book. i say conundrum earlier too or i hope not once once before okay. corundum <laughs> the boy um corundum is a type of rock too uh is um you know is also killed and so so alabaster so you do we know for the very beginning of the book one of the mysteries of the book is who is this man and why does he break the earth and by the end of the book because of this narrative structure you get an answer to that and you get and i and i think you get a also kind of ongoing mystery because i think part of the answer is anger vengeance revenge and sort of throwing off the yoke of the oppressive um, empire, but then there's also a sense that maybe he has a plan to make a new world that is better mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's my answer. I and mean, do you have any other, what, what, what else, any other thoughts about the alternating structure? Yeah. I mean, you know, I always end up in like metaphor land, um, but it's like this book feels like a fan that is being flattened. Mm. Um, you know, like, like at first it's this kind of like very intricate thing. Um, but as we can, you know, and like a fan is, you know, the, a lot is hidden. Um, but then like 
what happens over the course of it is that we actually realize that things are a little simpler than they appear at the first first moment. That's one thing that I thought of. The other is that it's got sort of a geological shape to it. Mm. That there are these like strata um, as we go through the book mm -hmm. that we then begin to realize that are actually like the same body of rock or schist or, you know, um, uh, the word for lava rock is presently escaping me oh, uh, <laughs> uh, oh uh, obsidian or um or, or well in the ig in the igneous uh, sedimentary or metam volcanic metamorphic metamorphic <laughs> Thank yeah you. um yeah and actually volcanic rock is igneous um and metamorphic right. is okay. rock that has started in one shape and then the pressures of the world have transformed it into something else sort of turned it into another one right. Um, and then the other thing that I really thought of uh, as you were as you were kind of talking through it was uh, the usual suspects, mm. um, which also plays with alternating structure and yeah. where we are in time. Um, I don't know if you'll remember this. It's one of my favorite things about the movie. As the credit sequences open in the beginning, the time signature we get is last night. Mm. Which is one of the most marvelous like beginnings to a movie in the same way that we don't know where we are and who we're being talked to here. Yeah. Because the trick of the usual suspects is to make is to continually play with your perceptions of character and time. Yeah. And we get a similarly large kind of reveal towards the end of this book as we do at the end of that movie. Um, but yeah, I think that she is really doing a very cool thing of sleight of hand alternating structure um, where, yeah, the characters are merging as we get to the end of the book. Um, and that's, I think, what makes that alternating... The, the alternating structure makes it palatable because we get little breaks. We're, we're not in this monolithic one narrator for the whole time, even though it turns out that we were. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, like, no, no, but yeah, that. they're right. It, they feel like three separate stories, and then towards the end, they they do they merge in a way that feels very seamless. And again, I can quibble yeah. with like the foreshadowing and that kind of thing, but at the end of it, you do feel like you know this one character at three different phases in her life, and you have assembled that story into chronological order in your brain, but you can also hold the three separate as well. And you can understand the relationship between Datmaya, Cyanite, and Isun, who are the same person, but also they are kind of like three different personalities because each one of those names and personalities was chosen for a different reason and is a, it, it fits a different phase of her existence mm -hmm. too. Um, I, I guess one big question, and this is probably the biggest question that for you that I have, and it's I'll make it a two-part question, is in do you feel that Alabaster's act of breaking the earth and of killing millions of people, do you feel like it was morally justified by the events of the book and then maybe the other question the follow-up question is that is 
was that moral question given its due? So the question I hear is, if you want to make a moon omelet, you got to break at least 7 million eggs. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. Indeed, yeah. And, and is it okay to break 7 million eggs to make a moon well, omelet? Well, another way to put it is, is, um, is it okay? I mean, if you kill 7 million people, some of those people are going to be children. Some of them are going to be innocent. Some of them are going to not approve of the social structure that, you know, has, has oppressed, uh, alabaster and cyanite. Some of them are going to be young, undiscovered orogenies. Um, some of them are going to be bureaucrats sort of trying to make things better. Some of them are going to be depraved. And at one point he just says, um, human has deserved it. And I don't know. I, um, I don't know. Do you feel like when he says that the book is also making that argument or is that, is, is, does the book somehow stand separate from Alabaster's claim that those hmm. that those seven million people deserve to die? Okay, uh, this is a boy. This is a, this is a big question. Um, we could talk for a long time about this question. Um, did the people of Dresden deserve it? Hmm. Did the people of Hiroshima deserve it? Did the people of London deserve it? Um, you know, I mean, like you know, you brought up Genghis Khan, you brought up Stalin, Hitler. Um, mass murder has also been, you know, perpetuated on, you know, we are American. We are going to look at the end of World War II differently than the people of Japan. Yeah. Um, yep. And I think so. I think that's one of the most interesting questions about this book. Mm. The the prospect of slavery lurks behind the whole book. Um, too many people are being made to do things under force of threat um, and to work under force of threat and to make the society of the oppressors richer, safer. Um, you know, it is to her credit that she never comes right out and says it. Yep. Um, she does a nice job of generating that allegory parable parable um parallel i mean kind of use whatever term you want to use there um and i think she she does it with enough complexity and i think that's why it's a interesting and enjoyable book because i think that question is open-ended mm -hmm. and i think that if you talk to anybody that is um that doesn't benefit from the racial structures that you and I benefit from um, a lot of the time, the thing that you hear a lot of is we really just need to like take the system away and start over. Yeah. Um, uh, David Graeber's book debt, which like is such an interesting book um, and all, and like a great parallel to uh, snow crash because it's like deals with the same time period. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, deals with a lot of different time periods but there's this one part where he talks about Sumerian and Babylonian debt. And what would happen is that eventually, like, the debt would just kind of get out of hand. And there would be a popular uprising. Everybody would go and just destroy all the clay tablets uh, that, like, all of the debt was recorded on. Um, I'm sure Chuck Palahniuk knew something about this when he went and wrote Fight Club. Yep. Um, but there's a historical precedent of kind of, like, 
literally wiping the tablet clean (laughs) and and beginning again and i think that that's one of you know when you assemble a novel you really have to you got to get the world right for your story i think a lot of people when they set out to do world building begin with the idea of like i want to make a cool world and that's why you end up with like you know everybody makes hoth because they think that ice worlds are cool um they're not stop it um cold they're cold (laughs) and empire strikes back nailed it and then as you will notice left um but good world building provides the architecture for your story and by creating this world that is riven by seismological strife it really like it's obvious that this world is fucked like they have had millennia of this exact thing going on and on again they have five seasons they have spring summer fall winter and death that is what the fifth season is and at a certain point like you have a choice you can be like all right we are going to keep doing this cycle this sounds really familiar at this point to like our world or we can do something to start over And I think that's the big question behind the last two books that we've read. What are you willing to do in order to get the human race a second chance? Or in this particular race, several different, in this particular book, several different races, a second chance at stability, equity, fairness. This book is written in 2015, 2016. Like, you know, the, the riots in Ferguson are like, I think two years removed at this point, like really not far away. Um, and uh, the black community in America is fed up. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great question. And the thing that I love the most about this book is that it it wrestles with it and it doesn't come out with a answer that yes, Alabaster was right to do it. No, Alabaster was wrong to do it. It's left to us to kind of like make those decisions for ourselves, which is why I think it's such a good book. All of that. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It's compelling. And, you know, you raised the question of Dresden and Hiroshima and like, no, obviously those people didn't deserve that. But although it also, that doesn't necessarily mean that the allies that made those decisions bear the full moral responsibility of it you know that 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 i mean i don't think i it's hard to say it's very complex but i do think the nuclear attacks on hiroshima and nagasaki were wrong i think they were unnecessary um but it is morally complex and the japanese empire bears some responsibility for that by being you know Mm -hmm. by engaging in aggressive warfare and um so that's a great analogy I still am left with the feeling, though, that I don't feel as though the question was treated with quite as much complexity as I would have liked. I don't know that we were necessarily made to feel the suffering of the people in Yumenez. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you get Cyanite sort of feeling bad about Alia um, and feeling bad about the people she killed uh, in the ships a little bit. That's a, as close as you get to that. Um, but I do think, you know, if you really want to talk about whether the firebombing of Dresden 
was morally justified, you know, you need to know about who lived in Dresden. And if you want to understand Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the grievous cost of that, you need to know something about that people. And I don't I don't think we ever we learned much about Yumenez. There's the moment where Alabaster is talking about the terrible city that eat, that ate children. And that's, you know, that's why I forget the name, um, but that sort of like uh, or, origin from the legend, you know, went to punish and destroy that city. And he seems very comfortable with a kind of like, you know what, they deserved it. Um, they're part of an evil and corrupt um, empire. And I, and I, I think that there are a couple moments where I think I see N.K. Jemison putting her thumb on the scale by making the oppressors depraved and in a way that it's like, well, maybe it would be a more interesting story if, like Breaking Bad, the antagonists also felt like they were doing what they're doing for good reasons. And I have a reading queued up for that, too, if, if, if that's all right. Yeah, let's do it. Which is, so this is the final confrontation where... Um, Shafa shows up. This is, you know, the ships are attacking the island. Cyanite is fighting them off. Alabaster's been taking away. Um, and, and Shafa arrives and Cyanite has uh, Corundum, the baby. Um, and she, you know, is afraid that um, the baby's going to be taken from her. Um, and Shafa says, there's no need for these histrionics, Demaya. Shafa, guardian, warrant, says softly. Then he pauses, looking apologetic. Cyanite. She has not seen him in years, but his voice is the same. His face is the same. He never changes. He's even smiling, though it fades a little in distaste as he notices the mess that was in him. He glances at the shirtless guardian, the man's still grinning. Shafa sighs, but smiles in return. Then they both turn those horrible, horrible smiles on Cyanite. She cannot go back. She will not go back. And what is this? Shafa smiles, his gaze fixing on Koru in her arms. How lovely. Alabasters? Does he live too? We would all like to see Alabaster Cyanite. Where is he? The habit of answering is too deep. A stone eater took him. Her voice shakes. She steps back again, and her head presses against the bulkhead. There's nowhere left to run. And for the first time since she's ever known him, Shafa blinks and looks surprised. A stone? He sobers. I see. We, we should have killed him then before they got to him. As a kindness, of course, you cannot imagine what they'll do to him, Cyanite. Alas. Then Shafa smiles again, and she remembers everything she's tried to forget. She feels alone again and helpless as she was that day near Palela, lost in the hateful world with no one to rely on except a man whose love comes wrapped in pain. But his child will be more than a worthwhile replacement, Shafa says. I'm, uh, I, I, I can't hear anything other than Sister. Sister. <laughs> Alabaster has a child. 
wise we were to hide him from me. Yeah, Shafa's being so evil right there. He's, being know, he's, so, he's like he's like devouring the scenery. He's he's being so evil when he's smiling, and I loved the complexity of their relationship before. And to me, it's so interesting if Shafa is this sort of torn ambivalent character you know somebody mm -hmm. who's trying as you know and it, if we look at the history of slavery there were enslavers who tried to they called it improve slavery you know which was an impossible mm -hmm. quest but you know nk jemison has said i can't find the quote that she's interested in what makes systems and structures stable and i think one of the thing that makes systems of oppression stable is that somehow good-hearted people have to accept them have to come to believe in them and to me that's just a lot more interesting to explore how that happens rather than just making the oppressors really fucking evil and in the yeah. end i feel like what she did was sort of like Shafa is like the sheep who took, takes his head off. And he's like, all along, I've just been really evil. And now I'm just going to let, I'm going to smile at you and I'm going to take your baby away from you. And I'm going to like it. And I'm going to revel in it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And maybe, you know, maybe that's true to N.K. Jemison and how she sees the world. You know, I, it's, it's, mm -hmm. she's writing from her experience but to me, that moment and a few others like it, where we make the oppressors extra depraved, to me actually mm -hmm. robs the story of its moral complexity and robs it of a more fascinating dimension where, where it can go, where we really, it, you know, I do love the, it, it, you said this about the world too. And I think you know, there was a moment, you know, when the pirates are raiding, the coast where I'm just sort of like this world is set up so that the only way to survive is you have to kind of do it at other people's expense. It, it, it feels like that, you know, that, that either because, you know, the, the origins are dangerous and, and, uh -huh. and, and Alabaster is always like, yeah, we should be in charge. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. You got a lot of anger and you're, you kind of wallow in your power a little bit. Like, you know, if I think about the, the closest metaphor I can think of for Orogenes is sort of like the military. And I think like in a stable society, it, it, it definitely goes better when the military um, respects the civilian authority. And, and so <laughs> what an understatement. Yes. And so, Could you, and so, so I'm not, I want you to publish that to like the countries of South America or Russia <laughs> like, or, well, yes, or but... <laughs> you know, Japan in the 1930s and forties or Germany yes. and the, that Weimar military Germany. dictatorships um... are bad. And, and, and not to say that Alabaster would have, would be a bad leader, but just to have these demigods as like the government of these societies mm -hmm. to me seems like a bad idea. And so, to be a part of a society, we all do have to accept a certain amount of social control. 
this degree of social control is oppressive and it's evil and cyanite and alabaster are right to resent it and they're right to resist it but there really is an interesting problem of what do you do in a world like this and you have these people who have the power of demigods they they, there is a strong impulse to bring them under control and and so i think that's a fascinating topic i think it's interesting and i think just kind of the way the example I gave with Shafa, the way in which the sort of oppressive forces are kind of sometimes comically demonized to me, mm-hmm. it does. It robs from that, in my opinion, just a little bit. I still think this is a really impressive, powerful book. And and it's. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm saying, you know, but it was something that that kind of spoiled that moral question for me a little bit, too. Although I am thinking about it a lot and I'm thinking about these things it's been in my head for the last week. And I am thinking like, oh, do the oppressed have the right to kill the oppressor? And in what circumstances do the oppressed have the right to take revenge? And I think about, you know, how in our modern era, in our globalized era, it is really, really, really hard to live and meet our basic needs without somehow being tied to an exp- an oppressive or exploitative or environmentally mm-hmm. destructive system like you know you drive around and you burn gasoline you don't want to do that okay get an electric car oh guess where the lithium is mined in a terrible mine where people are probably enslaved oh you don't want to spend too much yeah. money on clothes go to marshall's or nordstrom rack all that stuff came from a sweatshop somewhere it, it, it's really hard to disentangle ourselves particularly in this complex globalized world and i think that's true in this world of the stillness too and Ex- mm-hmm. To me, exploring that is a little more interesting than just making, you know, the the uh, the empire, you know, a kind of evil Darth Vader like empire. It's like instead of if pulling the football away, Lucy like sprouted fangs and just eats Charlie <laughs> yes. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Holly- Halloween special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if there are any art minded people oh, out man. there. Oh my God! Please draw that for oh, us. That's terrible. Um, but I, I, have a, I have a, I have a, <laughs> I have a, I have a non-joke response okay. as well. Okay. Um, it touches on this question of magic that I've been wanting to talk mm, about, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to go into the full thing because I think we're coming up on time. Yeah. But, um, I think what your question gets at is so magic um, stands for so many things figuratively. I think in general, it tends to stand for the power that human beings have um, and the ways in which power can be abused. Mm. Um, and and perhaps also the ways that humans' power can be put to forces of, like, sheer wonder. Um, I mean, like, we talked about this last time, or we talked about this while we were talking with Adam and Lindsay, that... Um, previous cultures might like a stone age person dropped into a Renaissance era cathedral is going to be like, this has to be magic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so that's, and, and I mean, like even talking about a cathedral, like we are talking about the power of human ingenuity. It really just arches, very, you know, just like the power but, of the arch. So complicated, though, yeah. because like beautiful, amazing, inspiring. Mm-hmm. 
terrible use of resources yeah and people i was gonna say walmart blood. you you went with cathedral and i was like yeah take a take a person from the stone age and put them in walmart and a, a, just a cathedral of a different type there you go yeah you know a a large airy space devoted to the religion of capitalism yeah. is what walmart is and i i mean i really do believe that it's very easy to get hung up, especially if it's like magic, as we were talking about last time, that's sort of deployed in a Dungeons and Dragons-esque, like, well, I cast Melf's Acid Arrow, yeah. and I do 2d4 points of damage this round, and next round I get to do 1d4 points of damage. It's not going to work, because I put a spell um, of protection on, yeah, I get that for, yeah. And, and like, when those spells show up in, like, D&D novels, like, the joy is recognizing what spell it is. It's an insider's joy. There's nothing actually, like, figurative or interesting in a literary way. When magic shows up in these contexts, I really do think it stands in for the power and the responsibility that human beings have to either do well or do ill. Mm -hmm. And I think that... I, I totally agree with you that it is a sort of scene chewing moment when Shafa turns into this like really depraved villain. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a case for NK Jemison here that that's the point mm. that at a certain point, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think you're right that a world in which the Orogenies are in control is probably also not a good world. Yeah. Um, but in the service of, you know, um, like a more perfect society, uh, I think that she is setting things up to really let us know that this particular version isn't, it, it's not workable anymore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and really that gets embodied in the sort of horror of, um, of Shafa in that moment. But yeah, I, I was bummed to see him reduced to that. It, it, um, it, it's, it, um, to me, it's sort of the, um, fundamental attribution error, which is that alabaster and cyanite's monstrous behavior is understandable, even though it may be morally questionable. Um, but, but we're going to give them complexity. And and Shafa doesn't get complexity because he's he's the oppressor. And um, yeah, to me, it would be more interesting to see the oppressor having a similar degree of complexity, not to say that he's not doing terrible things as well, but to do them and sort of enjoy it. That's also that's yeah. that's not my experience of recognizing to the degree to which I have participated in oppressive systems. Often they are perpetuated by people who think they're doing the right thing or, or are just not critical enough of the way that their, their actions are affecting other people or they're not vowing other people's lives in dignity enough, not in a evil mustache twirling, sneering Darth Vadery way, but in a more banal, you know, as Hannah Arendt put it, a kind of everyday, um, absorption um of what appears to be a necessity but really actually isn't that's a great place i think to go to trivia yeah yeah all right host goes first um and we will also ask each other about whether we'll read this book again too so we can um 
we can get into that. Um, I, I mentioned this recently to you. Um, so, um, a more recent series by N.K. Jemisin is on is coming. One came out in 2020. I think there's another one due. The first one's called "The City We Became," and it is set in New York and in more or less now new york city and in this world it's very much like our world um reminds me a little bit of like neil uh, neil gaiman sort of american mm. gods anansi boys or, or a lot of neil gaiman which is it's our world but there's supernatural elements to it um every city has an avatar um so there is a human being who kind of embodies the city and in um new york Manhattan has an avatar, but so do the other boroughs. Um, so the avatar of Staten Island is a 30-year-old white woman named Aislinn Houlihan, or Aislinn Houlihan. And your task is to guess what her... Oh, and all of the avatars have a superpower that somehow relates to the city itself. And your job is to guess what the her superpower is. The borough? The borough. The borough. Okay. Their particular borough. So the, okay. the superpowers have a relationship to the particular borough. So, is the Staten Island Avatar's superpower A, she can become invisible? B, her cigarette smoke can foil the attacks of the enemy? Or C, she has an allyship with hawks, uh, which will do her bidding. Not unlike Aquaman with fish, except for in this case, it's hawks. Invisible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Staten Island. <laughs> poor, poor Staten Island. Poor Staten Island. Yep. I was Ding. like, is this superpower going to be something about like weirdly conservative values coupled with like a large like like landfill like and like gay diaspora population from manhattan right i thought you might go for the cigarette smoke too oh i was so tempted by it but, my uh, god like, um the cigarette smoke foiling the enemy is actually the superpower of the avatar of sao paulo so i <laughs> I, I took it from a different <laughs> I took it from a different avatar, but I was like, that could easily be Staten Island. There's a lot of cigarette smoke on Staten Island. I was also trying to do something with the Fresh Kills land landfill, but I didn't think about. But I also, I, I don't know where hawks came from, other than I just have the sense that there are a lot of hawks in New York in general. There are, and, that, and, and, and that, more. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, the city has become sort of a city of hawks. It's like I just, I like the idea of like all the urban hawks like helping out the uh, avatar of Staten Island. Yeah, as a as a one-time resident of New York City, uh, Staten Island is the invisible borough. I mean, indeed, uh, yeah. The indeed. New York City Marathon, which um, technically touches every borough, <laughs> insofar as you start with basically your heels on Staten Island on the far side of uh, of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Mm. <laughs> Do I got that bridge right? Um, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the big bridges is, is there's also the George Washington bridge, which that's is in that a, area that's, too, that's but Manhattan I think that goes to, to Jersey. Jersey, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so I think it is the Arizona bridge. My friend, yeah, ben, yeah. Arizona narrows Staten Island. Okay. Got it. My Phew. friend, Ben Pajak was born on governor's Island and I think lived there. Um, and he remembers as a kid watching the two 
sides of the span of the Verrazano Bridge growing closer and closer and closer. And one day it was connected. Yeah. And that's That's a big ass bridge. Yeah. That is a big ass bridge. Um, that's that could be another one of our. Uh, it's it's like Larry Niven, another one of our subtopics. Big ass bit bridges of uh, big ass bridges of America. Okay, I've got a quote for you uh, from M.K. Je- N.K. Jemison. Hiccup. N.K. Jemison's blog. Um, and what I'm going to ask, I'm going to read it to you. She's talking about art, and then your job is to identify which particular medium. Uh, she is talking about okay this is what art does it moves you maybe it makes you angry okay maybe it makes you laugh not all of it is good but so what there's a lot of incredibly shitty art everywhere in the world but the good art that's the stuff that has power because you give it power the stuff that lingers with you days or years later and changes you in small unexpected ways the stuff that keeps you thinking. So, she was talking about. You have five options here. Ooh, I know. Well, there's a lot of art out there. A. Music. B. Literature. C. Video games. D. Board games. E. Visual art. Video games. Ding! Hell yeah. Uh, I'm going to read the the above passage of the blog where she narrates this scene uh, while she is playing the PlayStation 4 game Journey. Other player sticks around, shows me other ribbons, waits for me while I'm meandering. At one point I got a little ahead of them and it fell wrong to leave them behind. So I waited for them. Other player dances a circle around me. I grin. We go on, together. At one point, things go wrong. Other player tries to show me a safe way through a dangerous area, but one of the flying snake monsters, if you haven't played Journey, just go with it, targets OP. I try to make myself a better target, maybe draw the thing off, signal wildly so the snake monster will come after me instead, but it still attacks OP, ripping its ribbon in half. At this point, I expect OP to be done with me. It's not really my fault that OP got hurt, but if OP had been alone, concentrating on themselves and not me, they might have done a better job in navigating the area. But OP stays once they recover. We continue to guard and guide each other all the way through the game. At the end, the most beautiful part of the game, OP starts spinning circles around me. I spin back. It's an indescribably lovely moment. I often cry at the end of Journey. It's that kind of game, and I have a marshmallowy center sometime, but this time was special. That's very lovely. I was like, I could be reading a section of the book where she's describing like the relationship between her and Inon. Um, yeah. You know, like the way that that Essen Cyanite Demaya talks about Uche. Like there's this tenderness in this description of an online video game interaction that I, I just find the briskness of her voice just really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, um, Chris bag, will you read the fifth season again? Yeah, I am going to read it again. I need to get clearer on pretty much all of it. 
Like, I think it's a really good book. I want to take another crack at it. It is a pretty, once you kind of set your feet in the world, it goes pretty quickly. Um, and I really want to read the rest of the trilogy. I think I'm going to, you know, drop that into my reading schedule. How about you? Um, I think I will read it again. I actually, you know, we almost did this taping a week ago. And I was ready to kind of tear the book a new one then. It, it, I was kind of angry by the ending and angry by my sense of how I didn't really feel like Alabaster's kind of moral choice in that moment had been. I was okay with it, but I wanted it, I wanted it to be treated more. I wanted it to be treated with more weight. I think it's grown on me a little bit. I don't know that I want to read the 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 trilogy i kind of feel like i know what we're being set up for and i don't think i'm all that interested in where it's going um but i do think i will read it again i think i'll read it again in about 10 years to see if maybe i get it a little bit better than i do now maybe some of my own blind spots are sort of leading me down that particular critique or maybe i'm Maybe in and so I'm curious about that. Um, so I, I do think I'll read it again, even though I don't think I'll read the trilogy. I do definitely think I'll read the New York book, though. That sounds mm. great. Yeah, and I, just um, your description of the avatars, I'm I'm so tickled by them. Very very redolent of Neil Gaiman, um, mm -hmm. to you know, sort of the idea that the sort of cities can take on a kind of uh, supernatural quality, which I think we've all felt. You know, mm -hmm. cities do have personalities. Well. What's next um, is probably, um, I think we decided we'd do summer reading first. So I believe what's next is The Intuitionist by Colson Whitehead, which I have not read and I'm very excited to read. And how can our listeners get in contact with us? Oh, our listeners um, could write hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. My door just blew open. That's creepy. Um, is there a bird there? Not at the moment, although if I left it open long enough, two Carolina wrens would fly in. Let me close the door, too. I'm here uh, just in case, you know, there's an axe murderer crouched there waiting for me to turn my head <laughs> the other side. It's been rather it's been rather windy on this particular leg of my travels, which has been a little disappointing because it's, me it's meant the surf has not mm. been all that great. It's been a little choppy the last several weeks. Anyway, uh, listeners can reach us at hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. That's an email. Uh, you can go to our website, uppermiddlebrow.com. You can follow us at uppermiddlepod on Twitter or uppermiddlebrow on Instagram. And you can also follow me at Curious Dukes on Twitter and JP Dukes9 on Instagram. You can follow Chris Bag on Twitter at Chris Bag. And you can follow Chris Bag on Instagram at Christopher Bag. Did I get them all Dude, right? Dude, you nailed you were eight for eight on that. That was amazing. That was flow right there. I had some <laughs> that was flow. impressive. Social yeah, media we, flow. We are we are well warmed up. Um, Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the Origines and the Guardians. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by me, Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. And folks, if you're interested, both Jesse and I are writers. Uh, we write at least for a portion of our living. And if you are interested in securing our services, you can track me down at chrisbag.com or any of the above 
uh, social media handles. And you can track Jesse Dukes down um, at his social media handles if you would like to retain our services for editing, copywriting, content generation, um, pretty much anything that involves uh, putting words together. Uh, we would love to help you out. And here's a testimonial. Um, so recently, a old friend of mine who was listening to one of these episodes uh, reached out to me uh, to hire me to, to read through and suggest edits for his screenplay in, prob- uh, in progress. Um, and he wrote, and thank you so much for helping with this project. I feel like several curtains have been lifted and doors opened and the way forward so much clearer, all because of Upper Middle Brow. So see, you can make money in podcasting. Uh, That was my friend Lee, and I think I told you this too, but I was inspired by um, Hamlet's hit points, which I didn't know about until you talked about it in one of our Project Hail Mary episodes too. So I did a beat analysis of Lee's screenplay using Hamlet's hit points as a guide, although I added a couple terms of my own that I didn't see in that book too. And let me just say, we do both charge a professional fee, um, but I love doing this kind of work. I, I really enjoyed working with Lee. I love reading anybody's writing in progress, any kind of uh, aspiring writer. I love giving workshop notes. I think I'm pretty good at it. I know that Chris is good at it. Um, so yeah, we're uh, the emails are open. And you could also write me at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com too. Or, or. or bag at uppermiddlebrow.com. And I will also say that Jesse is a very, very good editor. Um, he is one of the first people that read my novel draft and gave a lot of really, really helpful commentary that is sitting on my whiteboard right up there. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, hey, there is one more thing. Uh, We just did a taping last night as I'm mixing this episode, and we decided that we are going to do a live version of Upper Middle Brow Draft Day. And we have a date. So Draft Day is when Chris and I get together and we use that kind of ranked choice voting system to pick the next roughly 12 things that we're going to be talking about, books or movies or whatever. Uh, We usually plan out about 24 episodes Um, And we're going to do it live. Uh, I don't know exactly what that's going to mean. It'll be remote. It'll be streaming somehow. We might use Discord or Twitch or YouTube or something. I don't know. We're going to work that out. But we do have the date. And that is Thursday, August 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So you can go ahead and put that in your calendar if you want to attend. There will probably be more information in the next episode, which will be uh, Colson Whitehead's The Intuitionist, part one. But you can also watch our social media. I'm sure we'll announce the details there. We will also put a blog post on our website, um, which you could subscribe to. um, So you'll get an email notification. So uh, just watch all those spaces. You can go to uppermiddlebrow.com to subscribe or just pay attention. Go ahead and save the date. And more information is coming. Thank you.